It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the season premiere of Monitor Monday. This morning, this is our ninth year of live broadcasting, and today on Monitor Monday, this is our special 60-minute edition with some of healthcare's most respected subject matter experts looking ahead to tell you what you can expect in 2018. This morning, you're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, Janelle Aladinar, Nancy Beckley, Frank Cohen, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Angela Phillips, Timothy Powell, Jay Paul Spencer, and Andrew Walkler. With the Republicans controlling Congress and the White House, 2018 is shaping up to be another tumultuous year in health care. So for news alerts and special bulletins on all the regulatory changes taking place, we've got you covered right here at Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Now before looking ahead, we check in with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I've missed you all terribly these last four weeks. 2018 is starting off with a lot of excitement. I'm going to talk about knee replacements in a moment, but first, I doubt many of you have had the time to follow the Senate confirmation hearings for Alex Azar, who has been nominated to head the Department of Health and Human Services. I don't have time either, but I read Twitter. And it appears that Mr. Azar is in favor of testing alternative payment models for Medicare with mandatory participation. You may recall that one of the first moves by Tom Price as secretary was to cancel the expansion of mandatory bundles and to cut the mandatory joint replacement program in half. Hospitals had already spent a lot of money and effort preparing for those programs and were not happy having the rug pulled out from underneath them along with the many dedicated CMS employees who spent countless hours designing those programs. Well, so be it. But now, with Mr. Azar in favor of them, will all these programs be reinstated? It'll be interesting to see where this goes. Now, on to total knee replacement. Rack Monitor eNews published my article last Thursday giving my opinion on what I think CMS wants hospitals to do. Let me address a few questions I've already received. First, This is unique to elective total knee replacement on a fee-for-service Medicare patient. It does not apply to any other patient or surgery. Second, I have no insider information from CMS or any of the contractors. I read the whole OPPS final rule cover to cover, just as all of you did. So why do I think this is unique? First, CMS devoted 5,000 words to their discussion. That is 20 times as much as the discussion of prostatectomy coming off the list. They specifically talked about comorbidities and risk and not just length of stay. I also think CMS has seen the length of stay drop dramatically and at the same time knows there are beneficiaries who still required skilled care after discharge. I think they dislike the three-day stiff rule as much as we do. So they specifically stated that patients who need a SNF can be admitted as an inpatient. Now, if they're allowing inpatient admission, it is clear to me that they are also allowing the patient to stay the necessary three days. I also think CMS is cognizant of 
the financial effects of such a change, and I think hospitals should take that into consideration. Not to game the system to get more money, but because if CMS is going out of its way to give you the opportunity to get a DRG instead of an APC, you should investigate it. For large urban teaching hospitals, the reimbursement difference can be up to $15,000 per patient. So I'd urge you to read my article and read the actual rule. Then sit down with your compliance department, your finance people, your doctors, and decide what's right for your institution. I think there's just too much at stake for patients and the hospitals not to consider totally replacement as a very special opportunity. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. He was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. We continue with our 2018 Lookout Look Ahead edition with a report on Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. Here now is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. It is indeed good to be back after a bit of a hiatus, but uh, it is important for all of our listeners to know that the Medicaid integrity train keeps on rolling. And while the Medicaid RAC program has dialed back in several states, there are some states, particularly in my part of the world, uh, being based here in Milwaukee, uh, in the states of Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana, where Medicaid uh, RAC uh, activity continues apace. Uh, now, there are some differences in these states, in these state programs when you go from state to state, but uh, it appears that most of what the Medicaid RACs are doing at this point appears is on the administrative side with uh, credit balance audits, uh, uh, looking at uh, credit balances that may be out there and uh, making a determination as to where that money belongs. Uh, in addition, there are some individual uh, issues that are being looked at in the different states. In Wisconsin, they look at uh, transfers between units and inpatient DRG hospital reviews. Uh, in the state of Illinois, there is a large list of uh, things that they are looking at in that particular state, including DME uh, inpatient hospital hospital services, outpatient hospital services. Uh, and one thing that they have in common with uh, Indiana, who has a rather short list of issues that they're looking at, are long-term care facilities and some of the uh, uh, audits that are been, being performed in that space. So while the Medicaid RAC audits are uh, minimal in certain states, they are still going strong in my part of the world. Now, one of the biggest challenges that CMS has with regard to Medicaid audits is finding a good data repository uh, in order to gather Medicaid claims data from states across the country, compare that data one-to-one, -one, and then begin to put forward audit plans that are focused on the, what they consider to be the highest areas of fraud. And over the last two years, there has been a system built called the Transformed Medicaid Statistical Information System, or what they call TMSIS. Uh, now, the uh, idea was that all of the states would submit their claim data to this particular repository, and then they would begin to look at some of that data and formulate, formulate a plan. Now, the biggest problem, uh, first of all, is that we still have two states, Missouri and my uh, hometown of Wisconsin, uh, who, are, who have yet to submit claims data. But for the states that have, uh, the remaining states that have, they're finding uh, that the data may not be complete, 
and it is becoming somewhat impossible given the types of payment systems that are available. And when I talk about payment systems, we're talking about the solid IT systems by which these claims are generated. Uh, there is some uh, problems with the uh, comparability of state data, according to the Government Accountability Office. So uh, we've somewhat had a preview of this very same problem on the Medicare side when the Medicare Integrity Center uh, just outside of Baltimore opened a handful of years ago. Uh, it was hoped that this uh, type of repository would be of greater assistance in, in gathering data in real time and being able to find uh, fraudulent activity in a much faster way than they are now. Uh, unfortunately, what is happening on the Medicare side and Medicaid side is, that the same, is the same thing that's happening on the Medicare side in that it really takes the input of the person managing that data and, get, and organizing that data into something that makes sense for the numerous audit entities that handle CMS claims both on Medicare and Medicaid side. It promises to be an interesting year, not only for budgetary allotments for Medicare and Medicaid, but for integrity programs for both of those services. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thank you very much, Paul. That was Paul Spencer. Paul is the Monitor Monday National Correspondent. He is also with Dr. Spencer. Thanks again, Paul. Welcome back. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue with our Lookout Look Ahead edition here on today's Monitor Monday. You're going to hear from Janelle Ali-Dinar, Nancy Beckley, Frank Cohen, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Angie Phillips, Timothy Powell, and Andrew Wachler. This is Monday. It's January the 15th. It's the birthday to Dr. Martin Luther King, and you're listening to the season premiere of Monitor Monday, a special 60-minute news edition, 2018. Look out, look ahead. The year 2018 may well be described as the year of living dangerously. After 20 years, the therapy cap may finally be gone, but what will happen in its absence? Congress proposes lowering the manual medical review threshold from $3,700 to $3,000. Will physical therapy assistants and certified occupational therapist assistants be allowed to treat TRICARE enrollees in 2018? There are new CPT codes and changes ahead. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services revalued codes and reimbursement for therapy providers, and this action will change your reimbursement in 2018, and it may not be a change for the better. Register to attend 2018 Outpatient Therapy Rehab Updates, the Year of Living Dangerously. It features nationally recognized outpatient rehab authority Nancy Beckley. This essential webcast is tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. And speaking of Nancy Beckley here now with today's Hot Topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey is the President, Chief Executive Officer for Nancy Beckley & Associates, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. Nine years. Here we are together, and we're still going strong. Who would have thought? Well, going into 2018, Medicare beneficiaries will have their therapy benefits capped at $2,010 for PT and speech combined, and the same limit for occupational therapy at 2010. Congress recessed for the holiday break without addressing the expiration of the therapy cap exceptions process or acting upon an agreed-to bipartisan agreement to permanently end the therapy cap. So what does this mean? 
there are a few important things to keep in mind as rumors and misinformation circulate on listservs and on social media, including misinformation that is still left on the CMS website that's inaccurate, ad- advising beneficiaries that the therapy cap exceptions process is still in place. The facts as of January 1st, 2018 are the therapy caps exceptions process ended last year, 1231. Medicare beneficiaries are limited to 2010 of therapy under each cap. Therapy over the cap is statutorily excluded as a Medicare benefit in the absence of an exceptions process. The therapy caps apply to all therapy service locations with the exception of hospitals with the caveat that the therapy caps do, yes, do apply to critical access hospitals. Beneficiaries are financially responsible for all therapy over the cap, and again, that's with the exception of hospital therapy. Providers should issue a mandatory advanced beneficiary notice of non-coverage to advise beneficiaries of non-coverage of therapy over the cap. And exceeding the cap is not likely for beneficiaries under a single therapy plan of care However, for those receiving both PT and speech, for example, um, after having had a stroke, the therapy cap may be reached more quickly. In some instances, it may be reached prior to the end of January. So I'll be giving a great update on this tomorrow at my webcast, plus all the other changes in that great little commercial. Thank you, Clark Anthony. So let's move ahead to our poll for this morning. Um, and our poll this morning is sponsored by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. And as Chuck and I start our ninth year of RAC Monitor, we want to ask our listeners this morning a couple of questions regarding the key areas. If you had to pick only one topic, think about that, just one topic you'd like to hear more about on Monitor Monday. And we know as loyal listeners, you want to hear about a lot of them. What would it be? Pick number one if you want to hear about rack items. That's kind of where we got our base. So you want to hear about rack approved issues and related things such as the Omaha items, Medicaid, et cetera. And Drew Wachler is going to be giving us an update on that. Number two, if you're interested more about CMS regulations, for example, the two midnight rule, targeted probe and educate, the bundles, um, MIPS, the therapy cap, et cetera. Number three, fraud and abuse laws and rulings and regulations and applications and case studies. Pick number four, all of the above. And if you pick other, let us know. Send us a note in the chat box. And if it's not applicable, please check that. Chuck, I can't wait to see the results of these polls. Many of our listeners have been with us for a long time, and we'll find out exactly a little bit later in the broadcast. Thanks, Nancy, very much, and thanks for being with me all these years, going back to January 2010. Thanks again, Nancy. That was Modern Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And by the way, there is still time to register for Nancy's webcast on what it means to be living in the world of rehab. It's a world of living dangerously, as you heard her say. And now's the time for the America's Rural Health Report. Here now is Monitor Monday Rural Health Correspondent Janelle Ali Dinar. Good morning, Janelle. Good morning and Happy New Year's to everyone. It's New Year's and these are the areas rural will need to be resolute for impact. Now, while I don't think MedCat, uh, MedPAC's vote of 14 to 2 to junk uh, MIPS will immediately impact uh, rural, I do think uh, a piece of 
uh, legislation that took place last week, the Medicaid work requirements could have a substantial impact on rural, especially since that's an area where people tend to be much more uh, chronically ill, culminated by the fact that if you have a higher Medicaid uh, ratio, you cannot make a blanket statement correlating one to the other. And I think that will have an impact on clinics and, and critical access hospitals. In the area of legislation, rules should be watching out for the Preventative Health Savings Act to help Medicare beneficiaries and preventive health programs, the Opioids and Stop Pain Initiative Act, and the CARES Act of 2017, which gives um, several different areas of incentives for the millions of caregivers out there, especially those in rural. In technology, there is a role for precision population health and risk stratification and more emphasis on data analytics, as well as a new role of blockchain technology and how that will safeguard patient data, especially in rural areas. Other areas of expansion to include uh, the Medicare Rural Hospital Flexibility Program, which critical access hospitals have relied upon, the uh, expansion of the nurse anesthetist traineeship program, which nurses serve as a front line for the opioid epidemic. We'll see an expansion and focus on the Broadband Community Reinvestment Act, as well as the expansion of CPC+, comprehensive primary care, and community health workers. Uh, three innovation programs to watch for uh, are the Dr. Arthur Kaufman of New Mexico has an extension rural office program called the HEROES program, which much like an agricultural extension program, works with uh, community liaisons uh, for grant writing and administration of uh, additional behavioral health uh, and other types of community services. The Life Corps Health Program, which is an integrated model for primary care and mental health, as well as more emphasis on mobile outreach programs, which will include uh, pharmacists and focus on anything from providing cholesterol to cancer screenings and tobacco cessation. I think that CMS will be giving more focus of critical access hospitals under the Hospital Star Ratings Program. Uh, as a reminder, more than one-third of critical access hospitals have had no rating. And where patient experience is being so important uh, in patients having uh, choices to make where they receive care, uh, this will be even more important. Uh, we'll continue to see an increase in the MA, Medicare Advantage Program. Uh, uniquely so, rural counties have achieved a 55 to 65 percent penetration rate, and so that growth is actually um, even kind of outgrowing uh, what the original thoughts would be around that. Um, I think for rural sustainability, you're going to see more focus on philanthropy partnerships to solve rural health care programs and how that will work with regional tertiary centers. So there's a lot to be excited for, a lot to be watchful of, but rural, remember this. You are the original pioneers, and now is not a time to give over your reins. Be resolute. Keep transforming. It's another year of big, bold change. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Janelle, very much. That was the Vice President of Rural Health for MyGenetics, Janelle Ali Dinar. You know, one of the uh, contentious issues facing hospitals and patients in 2017 were the proposed 340B drug discount cuts to that program. Here now with an update on that issue is Tim Powell. Good morning, Tim. 
Good morning, Chuck. And unfortunately for the folks that are fighting the changes to the 340B drug program, uh, we have gone from fighting to stop the changes from happening to uh, having the, the changes actually occur and, and trying to change things as we move forward. The American Hospital Association had filed suit to stop the reductions in the 340B drug program. But unfortunately, on December 29, 2017, the last suit was dismissed by a judge whose ruling read in part, in conclusion, the plaintiff's failure to present any concrete claim for reimbursement to the secretary for a final decision is a fundamental jurisdictional impediment to judicial review. And basically what they're saying is, is that you haven't been able to prove harm yet. So the lawsuit may be able to be resurrected after you can actually show that there's harm related to the reductions. So what are the 340 program changes? Regulations affecting hospitals who acquired their drugs through the 340B drug discount program took effect on January 1st. The program allows certain not-for-profit hospitals to purchase drugs at a reduced price. The biggest impact of the new regulations stems from how CMS pays for separately payable drugs. The current, the, the past rate was the average sales price plus 6%. Uh, just recently with the changes, they are now playing the average sales price minus 22.5%. So I'm looking at who qualifies as a deeper dive. Uh, the type of hospitals that qualify are nonprofit hospitals that qualify for disproportionate share with a dish percentage higher than 11.75%. Children's hospitals, freestanding cancer hospitals, critical access hospitals, rural referral centers, and sole community providers. So first, uh, we note that only nonprofit and government hospitals benefit from the program. For-profit facilities cannot participate, and we see that small and rural hospitals uh, have an easier time getting in the program. They actually can qualify with a slightly lower percentage of, uh, of poor patients in their disproportionate share percentage. Critical access hospitals are exempt from any other uh, proof in terms of their disproportionate share percentage, and uh, they automatically qualify for the 340B drug program if they are nonprofit. Uh, in conclusion, unlike other payment programs, the 340B program is a discount program. It's very hard to determine the impact of the regulations until we actually see them being implemented. We do note that the, these reductions pit for-profit hospitals against nonprofit hospitals, the theory being that the savings from the 340B drug reductions would be distributed out to all hospitals through their outpatient PPS payment rates. Starting January 1st of this year, the 340B drug program hospitals must start using a new modifier, uh, the JG modifier on separately payable drugs, drugs that could be distributed through a pharmacy, uh, and that will trigger the drug reduction of the 22.5%. And the use of the TB modifier uh, doesn't have an impact on drug rates, but all uh, claims coming through uh, the 340B drug program now require a special modifier to be applied. So this requires a lot of extra work from hospitals that are participating in the 340B drug program. Uh, we'll keep you updated. And with that being said, stay safe out there. Uh, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Rack Monitor, National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim was reporting on a 340B drug program. By the way, you can read an excellent article on that very program in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. So what can you expect in 2018 with all the changes that are taking place on the appeal process at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals? Well, for an update on that, here is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Good morning, Chuck. There's actually significant developments since the beginning of the year. We have two new programs that 
I really think are going to be helpful to a lot of providers and suppliers. We have the um, low value appeals settlement uh, of less than uh, when you have 500, less than 500 appeals. And that was presented to an open door forum uh, on January 9th. And we just recently came out last week and these kind of go hand in hand, the expanded settlement conference facilitation or SCF program, which becomes effective uh, in April of this year. Uh, let me go over uh, the two of them because together they cover most appeals other than statistical projections. So the uh, low value, uh, uh, the, the low volume appeal settlement is a actual settlement number. It's less than 500 appeals, and that's at the ALJ and the Appeals Council level. And CMS will pay 62% of the net approved amount. And so the, the criteria is uh, it's, it's for Parts A and B. It's less than 500 appeals as of November 3rd, 2017, uh, 62% at the ALJ and the Appeals Council. Um, think for a moment, if you like the 62%, but think what's at the Appeals Council. Appeals Council either have cases that you've lost at the ALJ and the provider has appealed, or you've won and the AdQuick has appealed. And so to get 62% on those cases, um, seems pretty reasonable. You could be ineligible if you are um, have any uh, 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 false claims actions or investigations. Uh, they, they can choose uh, whether you're eligible uh, or not if they're concerned about those types of uh, cases. The cases have to be uh, fully denied and not part of an extrapolation. Now, it's a very time-sensitive program. This program, if you have an even NPI, then you have to initiate the process between February 5th, 2018 and March 9th, 2018. If you have an odd NPI, you have to initiate the program between March 12th, 2018 and April 11th, 2018. So th th that's the uh, criterion eligibility for the low volume appeals. The rest falls into the expanded SCF. And that's either, either of these criteria, this is filed on or before uh, November 3rd, 2017, either 500 more appeals pending at OMHA or the Appeals Council, at the ALJ or Appeals Council, or any number of appeals um, at the ALJ or the Appeals Council that each have a greater than 9,000 in bill charges. So if you have large claims, any of those can be settled. And if you don't have as large claims, if you have more than 500, so if you have small claims less than 9,000, I mean, and you have, you have less than 500, you go with the 62%. If you have over 500 or over 9,000, you go with the regular uh, settlement uh, process. And so really this covers uh, quite a bit and Interestingly, it includes those cases that have not been settled at the uh, hospital appeals settlement. So the 66% and 68% settlements are now again eligible under uh, these programs. 
Thanks, Drew, very much. That was Andrew Walkler. Drew is the managing partner of Walkler & Associates, and he certainly is a pivotal figure when we talk about the ALJ and the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Again, Drew, thanks very much for being with us. You're listening to a special 60-minute news edition of Monitor Monday 2018. Look out, look ahead. And coming up, you're going to hear the latest hot-button issues facing inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. You're also going to hear some very important rack issues. Plus more on provider-based clinics, the plight of home care and hospice. And Frank Cohen has an exclusive report on some very questionable testimony from a CMS official. This is Monday. It's January the 15th, Martin Luther King Day, 2018. And you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. The year 2018 may well be described as the year of living dangerously. After 20 years, the therapy cap may finally be gone, but what will happen in its absence? Congress proposes lowering the manual medical review threshold from $3,700 to $3,000. Will physical therapy assistants and certified occupational therapist assistants be allowed to treat TRICARE enrollees in 2018? There are new CPT codes and changes ahead. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services revalued codes and reimbursement for therapy providers, and this action will change your reimbursement in 2018, and it may not be a change for the better. Register to attend 2018 Outpatient Therapy Rehab Updates, the Year of Living Dangerously. It features nationally recognized outpatient rehab authority Nancy Beckley. This essential webcast is tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Now, Nancy, let's take a look at the survey results. Alrighty, Chuck. I'm eager to see what our listeners are going to tell us that they want to hear more of if they could only pick one thing. So based upon our listener audience today, 12% say they want to hear about RAC-approved issues and related RAC items. 28% of our listeners this morning want to hear about CMS regs, the two midnight rule, targeted probe and educate, the bundles, and so forth. And 6% are more interested in fraud and abuse, the laws, the rulings, the case studies. But a whopping 51% want to hear about all of the above checks. So let's get the new year launched. We've got a lot to talk about. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And thanks for participating in today's Modern to Monday Listener Survey. And i got to tell you, we've got you covered. Our next guest is considered by many to be the nation's foremost authority on inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. She's a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board, and she's with us today with five hot-button issues facing IRF providers. Won't you please welcome Angela Phillips. Good morning, Angie. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Jack. It's good to be back with our panel, and I'd like to say a happy 2018, and welcome to all our listeners this morning. Let's face it, there's a lot of areas that earth leadership has to focus on every day to be successful. So I thought I'd highlight five issues that seem to be popping up all over the place for our clients, and I'm sure for Earths throughout the U.S. The first might be a surprise, and it relates to presumptive compliance. Far from new, CMS diagnostic categories have been with us since the 80s. But we're starting to get reports about a recent increase in death audits for failure to meet the presumptive compliance test, which is mathematical. Unclear why this is happening, but in cases where we have assisted organizations in responding to these death audits, 
it's been clear that they have issues related to completion of Field 22 in the EarthPi document, which is the etiological diagnosis, and the ICD coding that relates to that, particularly with codes with a seventh character, as is often the case with hip fractures. Some of those codes were addressed in October by CNS when they updated the presumptive compliance tables, but for ERSA's reporting periods overlap the dates of last October, this could continue to have some impact. So ERSA need to truly understand the differences between coding the ERSPI document and coding the UB document. If you do get a desk audit, however, remember this. Failing the presumptive test does not mean you're not compliant, but it does increase the administrative burden to the earth, and you have to prepare the records uh, and send those on for further desk audit. It's critical that you create a cover sheet that clearly identifies what the CMS topic is for which you admitted the patient. Second, those minutes of therapy. Nancy's not kidding. Therapy is under scrutiny in every single area of healthcare. In December, CMS instructed contractors that claims that didn't meet the standard three hours per day, 15 hours per week standard, would undergo further medical review. This suggests that CMS agrees with the fact that the total minutes of therapy alone should not arbitrarily be utilized to deny claims, and that's a good thing. But CMS further instructs contractors that when this arbitrary number isn't met, that they must go to um, clinical claims review. So we are expecting to see many more cases reviewed based on the minutes of therapy provided. CMS further reinforced to contractors at that time that the corrected and desired level of therapy was individualized one-to-one therapy. Prior clarifications have indicated that the predominance of therapy had to be individualized. Focus on the word predominance. The updated direction to contractors did not specify any percentage, but indicated that group and concurrent therapy could be used only on a limited basis. So we should be watching for this in audits as well. Number three, targeted probe and educate. It was on the survey. In August, CMS announced the expansion of the pilot product, and as expected, there was an increase in the number of ERFs reporting selection for the audit. Selected ERFs will undergo prepayment review of 20 to 40 cases. Reportedly, the cases that are being reviewed include hip fractures, patients with debility, patients with no tier-level comorbid conditions, and patients in the lowest level CMG within any category. If selected, ERFs should respond quickly to the ADR request. Remember, this is prepayment review, and be sure all documents are included. Number four, and this is important to all post-acute providers, coding of the GG items. Also in December, CMS posted web-based training modules for Section GG of the quality reporting. Since we believe that Medicare will achieve the goal of implementing a unified payment system by 2021, improving confidence in scoring GG indicators, one of the patient characteristics that's going to drive payment, is essential. You'll be likely to hear lots more about GG from us in the future. And finally, don't forget 1-1-2010. While the technical requirements for Earth documentation are now eight years old, we continue to see problems in these areas. So Earth must make accuracy in meeting both the timing and the content requirements for these rules a non-negotiable for the coming year. Bottom line, more audits, focus on therapy, and we need to prepare for the future and pay attention to Gigi.
Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is the founder and the CEO of Imogen Associates. Angie, thanks again very much. We continue with the 2018 season premiere of Monitor Monday with upcoming guest appearances by Frank Cohen, Dwayne Abbey, and our newest Rack Monitor correspondent, Nicole Emanuel, who is standing by with some really hot audits by the Racks. Plus, we're standing by to answer all your questions. It's about uh, 36 and a half minutes before the hour. Home care and hospice providers, of course, continue to be in the crosshairs by the OIG. Helping his association in 2018 navigate these treacherous waters is the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice, Bill Dombey. So, Bill, good morning. What's on the horizon for home care and hospices here? We are going to get a visit from our ever-favorite recovery audit contractors in 2018. The first RAC contract has been approved by CMS. Uh, They actually chose to do it on my birthday, January 10th, 2018. And it is a focus on complex home health review documentation and medical necessity. The details are scanty on this. Uh, It is uh, a focus we believe that's consistent with the improper payment rate determinations made under the CERT process. Uh, But home health has actually seen a significant decline in improper payment with the CERT analysis. Uh, It had been at 59% uh, back in 2007-14. It has now dropped to 32% in 2020. 17 with the latest numbers that are there, but nonetheless, the RAC has had approval. Uh, it will focus on claims having a claims pay date, which is uh, more than three years prior to the ADR date. Anything of that nature will be excluded. It is going to focus all across the nation, but it has an exception that we are still trying to get to the bottom of. Uh, there are demonstration states, as it's listed in the approval, a demonstration we don't know anything about, but would exclude Delaware, D.C., Maryland, New Jersey, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. Some of those states, most of those states are within the territory of PGBA. So this will be an interesting beginning to 2018 as we see the racks knock on the doors of home health agencies nationwide. A couple of other matters I wanted to bring up for everybody's attention, uh, and two of them have to do with activities pending before Congress. The Medicare Home Health Rural add-on ended as of December 31st, 2017. It was a 3% add-on to the payment rates for patients served in rural areas. Congress uh, did not yet extend any of those special policies. Uh, Home health's only main focus area one was the rural add-on. We are now having uh, Congress looking at whether to target the rural add-on rather than to just simply continue the 3% add-on across the country. A very interesting issue for the rural home health agencies as some of the states like Oregon have 76% of the home health agencies already paid less than the cost of care in rural areas. So uh, a great concern across the country as to what Congress may do on this. For hospice, they're looking at a consideration that uh, the Senate Finance Committee and Ways and Means Committees are considering under the extender analysis, and that would be to reduce hospital payment for patients that are discharged from the hospital to hospice after a less than median length of stay uh, in the hospital, a policy that we've seen already applicable in the home health realm 
concerns certainly relative to whether this will impact on the number, the volume of discharges to hospice for inpatients. Uh, last but not least, to reference uh, the 2018 expectation on continued dialogue regarding home health Medicare payment reform. Uh, we dodged a bullet in 2017 with the notorious HHGM proposal that would have completely changed the system for home health services. Uh, it is not necessarily back in play, but payment reform in a broad sense definitely is. So we'll be watching for that uh, and watching very closely because the last time there was such significant change, it completely changed the home health benefit, and that was in the year 2000. So, Chuck, uh, uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, thanks for inviting me back uh, in 2018, and uh, turn it back to you. Thanks very much, and a belated happy birthday to you, Bill, January the 10th. Thanks again. That was the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. And coming up later, report on the enigma that is provider-based clinics. Dwayne Abbey is standing by with that report. Also standing by with the latest hot rack audits is Nicole Emanuel, Rack Monitor's newest correspondent. Looking forward to hearing from her. Now I want to turn our attention to senior health care analyst Frank Cohen. He's got an exclusive report this morning. He's going to be reporting on testimony given under oath that has caught the attention of himself. Frank, tell us a little bit more about this testimony. Thanks, Chuck. Well, in May of 2014, the um, American Hospital Association sued HHS requesting it's called an order of mandamus, or basically it's a court order to force the government to do their job, which in this case was to solve the problem of this ridiculous backlog of appeals waiting to be heard at the ALJ level. So HHS's argument was that abiding by the initial district court's ruling, they would end up paying meritless claims, which is a violation of the Medicare statute. So in essence, HHS is saying that any action meant to disregard the auditor's findings would result in paying a Medicare claim that might have been deemed to have paid an error. Now, I, I just wonder how this is different from the CMS proposed settlement agreement uh, proposal that Drew was talking about. Well, as part of this lawsuit, a subpoena was issued to George Mills, uh, Deputy Director for the Center for Program Integrity at CMS. In November of 17, Mr. Mills gave testimony regarding HHS's effort in dealing with the appeals backlog. And in reviewing his testimony, I found a nearly unlimited amount of number laundering and doublespeak that, in my opinion, was designed to create nothing more than a smokescreen uh, to protect HHS from ensuring that due process is afforded to medical providers. For example, he stated that the group he focuses on consists of those with 3,000 or more pending appeals, which account for 0.6% of all pending appeals. So if an appellant, right, had more than 3,000 appeals um, pending, then he must be defining an appeal as a single event rather than what most of us consider an appeal, which is a package, so to speak, of all the encounters being appealed as part of a concise audit. And this is important uh, because if there are several hundred thousand appellants with more than 3,000 appeals pending, then there would have to be nearly 100 million appellants before the ALJ, which is simply impossible. Mr. Mills stated that, quote, at least 41.2% of pending appeals at OMA, or approximately 219,000 appeals, were, now listen to this, were filed by appellants that are subject of an open investigation by DOJ and HHS, OIG. 
And that's a stunning declaration, and one to me that is simply unbelievable. In fact, HHS stated that in 2016, OIG opened only 975 new healthcare fraud investigations. So when Mr. Mills says that, quote, 41.2% of pending appeals, does he mean individual encounters or are those appellants? Because if 3,000 pending appeals equals 0.6% of all pending appeals, and then we're talking about 5 million pending appeals, which, again, is just not true. So is he saying there's 219,000 claims pending DOJ and OIG investigations or 219,000 appellants that are under investigation? And in his deposition taken in December of 2017, it, it looked like he backtracked on a lot of the numbers by claiming that, now ready for this? He said that the RAC audits only accounted for about 15% of the OMA backlog. And as far as I can tell, he's the only person in the country that believes that that's true. And that includes the District of Columbia Federal Appeals Court. So here's the bottom line. HHS is supposed to be bound by this general 90-day statute, which means that these ALJ appeals are supposed to take place and processed within 90 days. But as we know, that isn't even a pipe dream anymore. And based on my reading of the Mills Declaration and deposition, he is saying that there is no longer any viable solution. And it's his words, it's the provider's fault. So in trying to decipher what he's really saying, I concluded that the guy either has no idea of what's going on or he has mastered the art of lying with statistics and counterfactual truth. And I think that that is the story here. And that, Chuck, is the world, according to Frank. That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. He's with Doctors Management. By the way, you can read Frank's explosive story in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. Thanks again, Frank. You know, with the tug-of-war between Congress and CMS over the fate of provider-based clinics, we asked author, educator, and consultant Wayne Abbey to bring us up to date and to help us understand what we can expect when it comes to provider-based clinics in 2018. Here now is Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, provider-based clinics uh, look at 2018 and then look even beyond because we are definitely in a cycle where changes are going to be taking place. So I have uh, four things I want to point out to you. Number one, for those of you that have any sort of a provider-based clinic at all, I want you to accept the fact that eventually, whatever eventually means, uh, that eventually uh, payment will be equalized between freestanding uh, physician-based clinics that are paid uh, 100% of the Medicare physician fee schedule uh, and provider-based clinics, which are currently uh, paid a combination of payments, partially through the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and partially through uh, APCs. Now, we have the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015 that came out, Section 603, and I'll be re referring to these 603 clinics. Now, one of the big questions is, what is a new clinic? So we have some definitional issues that we need to address, uh, among other things. But I want you to be fully aware of and accept the fact that over time, it may take years, uh, that uh, payment will be equalized. 
Now, in the meantime, uh, most of you don't have Section 603 provider-based clinics. They'd have to be off-campus, and they would have to be, quote, new, unquote, according to the uh, Bipartisan Budget Act. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I want you to watch the policies, because whatever policies uh, CMS decides to put into place will eventually uh, apply to and or otherwise affect uh, all provider-based clinics. So, everyone, I want you to watch these policy decisions. For instance, uh, moving a medical office from the fourth floor of a medical office building to the fifth floor, there's a suite number change. Does that now mean that this is a, quote, new, unquote, clinic uh, under the Bipartisan Budget Act or not? There are all kinds of policies, many of which uh, are still to be made, although CMS seems to be taking a very stringent approach to this process. Now, what about payment? Well, it turns out that we have a problem with payment. Now, theoretically, these Section 603 clinics should be paid 100% of the Medicare physician fee schedule, but as CMS has learned, this simply is not possible. It is not possible to do that. Therefore, they have uh, uh, developed a process of a proxy payment. So there is a proxy payment for the facility part. This is now being set at 40%. So you might ask yourself, where did this 40% come from? And in my opinion, at least, it came out of thin air. Now, if you read the Federal Register, you can read, you can read more about it, but uh, I think you're going to be a little less than impressed. The fourth thing that I do want to point out has to do with urgent care clinics. If you have any kind of an urgent care clinic, I want you to step back. I want you to take a look at it. I'm particularly interested in the uh, provider-based urgent care clinics. We're finding that more often than not, these may be classified as dedicated emergency departments. This brings in MTALA. It brings in a number of coding and billing issues. So everyone, if you have an urgent care clinic of any kind, step back, take a look at it, figure out what you're doing, why you're doing. Could this be construed to be a dedicated emergency department? And if so, what do you need to do? Thank you, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultant. He was reporting this morning from the very cold Ames, Iowa. Thanks again, Dwayne. Coming up probably in about uh, eight minutes from now, it's going to be our Monday Q&A. So keep on sending in your questions. I know we've got a lot of questions coming, and keep them coming. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, one of the newest Rack Monitor correspondents is attorney Nicole Emanuel. She's here with the latest hot audits from the Rack's Good morning, Nicole. Welcome to Monitor Monday. So let's go down your list of the hot audits by the Recovery Audit Contractors, the RACs, okay? Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here to talk about the hot topics of RAC audits. And interestingly, 
the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is now lifted its metaphoric skirt so that providers can look ahead and see what is going to be audited going forward. So in December, CMS listed five different topics that is going to be that are going to be the uh, the rack audits main topics. The first one is home health. This is not a shocker. Home health seems to be on the block quite often. Home health basically they'll be looking for medical necessity. I always find it humorous whenever they say that they're looking for medical necessity because if you just have a good bit of time on your hands and you want to Google what the qualifications are for an auditor, for a RAC auditor, you'll find that there's no medical background needed. You just simply need a BA. Now, there are exceptions, but most of the time, you're going to have the RAC auditor not having the background to understand medical necessity for home health. The second issue, annual wellness visits billed within 12 months of the initial preventive physical. This is simple math. This is simple math. You literally have to look at a calendar and make sure that 12 months has passed. A lot of the electronic health records programs are able to calculate this for you. So this is a very easy topic. Number three, ventilators. They're going to be looking at the detailed written orders, making sure that there's a name, a prescribing doctor, the date of order, the description or HCPCS code, and a doctor's signature. These are also going to be looked at for medical necessity, especially looking at the diagnosis, whether the diagnosis is germane to the treatment. The fourth topic that is going to be high up on the RAC audit poll, they're going to be looking at cardiac pacemakers and whether these were medically necessary. Again, looking at medical necessity, these are not going to be physicians making these calls. So it's very important that you appeal these decisions because there's a very high appeal rate success rate. The fifth RAC audit topic is evaluation and management same day as dialysis. Because except when reported with modifier 25, there are codes that are bundled for dialysis and they're gonna make sure that they're not getting unbundled. Now, I have to remind everybody, you have 120 days to appeal adverse decisions from a RAC, but the regulations do not protect healthcare providers unless they appeal within 30 days. So if you don't want to suffer getting your monies recouped, you need to go ahead and appeal those as quickly as possible and not wait for the 120 days. Again, appeal, 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 high success rate. Auditors do not always know what they're doing. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a co-assistant office managing partner at Gordon Reese Scully Mansukani. Now let's gather around our virtual roundtable this morning. It's a large one. We have 11 panelists. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy, a lot of questions. And I'm going to start from the top when our broadcast started. Christine wants to know when Dr. Hirsch is going to be giving his update on the knee replacement. And Christine, if you tuned in just a little bit late, um, you likely missed the brief little update that, that Dr. Hirsch gave. I would suggest that everybody take a peek at Dr. Hirsch's article that ran uh, the week following Christmas. It's a very good update on that. Um, and also you can purchase from the store Dr. Hirsch's December 7th 
webcast with Rack Monitor, and it is a fantastic webcast. In fact, it, uh, I'm going to be addressing um, total knee replacement in my uh, webcast tomorrow. The next question comes up, and Drew, we've got a couple for you. Vera wants to know, does the low volume include claims at the departmental appeal board level? Yes, it does. Okay. The next question is, is the uh, settlement conference facilitation settlement offered by CMS 62% as well, and are there any deadlines to file? On the 62%, there's um, absolutely deadlines. If your uh, NPI is even, you have to file between February 5th and March 9th of 2018. If your NPI ends in an odd number, you have to file between March 12th and April 11th, 2018. Thank you. The next question is for Dwayne Abbey. And Dwayne, um, I think you gave kind of a little bit of a scary update for all of us on provider-based rule, but somebody wants to know if you could please repeat those items related to the emergency department. That has to do with urgent care clinics and the fact that if you have a provider-based urgent care clinic, under certain circumstances, it can be deemed as a dedicated emergency department. And so I just want everybody to step back and take a look at uh, their situations to see where they are, just in case they might uh, they might be kind of in that gray zone between uh, being just a regular clinic and being uh, uh, deemed as a dedicated emergency department. Thanks, Dwayne, and I'm sure you'll be back to give us more updates on this. And Nicole, for you, could you just quickly list those five rack? topic audits. I think somebody just wants to capture it real quickly. If you could just name the items, and then I think that'll take us to the end of the broadcast. So number one is home health. Number two, annual wellness visits billed within 12 months of the initial preventative physical. Number three, ventilators, the detailed written orders. Number four, cardiac pacemakers, medical necessity related to such. Number five, evaluation and management, same day as dialysis. Thanks, Nicole, and welcome to our broadcast. We look forward to more of these hot updates on RAC issues. Thanks to all of our panelists this morning for helping me with the Q&A. Chuck? Thanks, Nancy, very much, and thank you all for sending in your questions. If we didn't have a chance to answer your question during today's live broadcast, we're going to make every effort to answer those questions offline. I want to thank you again for being with us. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, Janelle Ali Denar, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Frank Cohen, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel. Thanks, Nicole. Welcome to the program. Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Angela Phillips, Timothy Powell, J. Paul Spencer. Welcome back, Paul. It's great to have you with us. And, of course, Andrew Walker. Thanks, Drew, very much for being with us again after all these years. I'm Chuck Puck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us today. Go out and make it a great week in 2018. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.